0: hello everyone and welcome back to salt talks my name is john darcy i'm the managing director of salt which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance technology and public policy salt talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period with leading investors creators and thinkers and what we're trying to do on these salt talks is replicate the experience that we provide at our global conferences the salt conference which we host twice a year in a normal environment, uh, traditionally in Las Vegas, and then most recently in Abu Dhabi. And we're looking forward to getting those conferences back up and running uh, as soon as it's safe for our constituents, but look forward to doing some virtual events uh, later this year and early next year as well. So with SALT Talks, what we're doing, the same thing we're trying to do at our conferences is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And today's guest is one that we've been working really hard to get for a long time. We're very excited about having him on Salt Talks. His name is Anthony Scaramucci. Uh, Mr. Scaramucci is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. He's also the founder and the chairman of Salt. And I'll spare you uh, more biographical information about Salt, because if you're here, you probably already know. Uh, Prior to founding Skybridge in 2005, uh, Anthony co-founded the investment partnership Oscar Capital. Uh, which he sold to Newberger Berman in 2001. Prior to starting Oscar Capital, uh, he was a vice president in the private wealth management division at Goldman Sachs. In 2016, Anthony was ranked number 85 on Worth Magazine's Power 100, which is a list of the 100 most powerful people in global finance. In 2011, he received Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award in New York uh, in the financial services category. He's a member of several high-profile organizations, including the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the vice chair of the Kennedy Center Corporate Fund Board. He's a board member of both the Brain Tumor Foundation and the Business Executives for National Security. He's a trustee of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Foundations. Uh, He's the author of four books. The the Little Book of Hedge Funds was his first book, followed by Goodbye, Gordon Gecko, Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, Uh, and then most recently, Trump, the Blue Collar President, which obviously came... Prior to a little bit of an uh, about face that he did on the president as we head into Election Day tomorrow. Uh, In November of 2016, speaking of President Trump, Anthony was, uh, after serving on the Trump campaign, he was chosen to the president elect's 16 person executive committee on his transition team. So when people talk about how he was there for 11 days, so he knows nothing about the president or the administration, I sort of laugh because they're discounting the fact that he was on the campaign for nine months and also uh, played an integral role in the transition team as well. Uh, Anthony is a native of Long Island, which is where I'm standing today and where he's uh, sitting today as well. He holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics from Tufts University uh, in Boston and a JD from Harvard Law School. A reminder, if you have any questions for Anthony during today's Salt Talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And uh, usually I'll turn the interview over to Anthony, who acts as the moderator, but today I'm the moderator and Anthony is the one who's going to be roasted. So I'm looking forward to this. And uh, just like we do with all of our guests, Anthony, uh, I want you, I read a little bit about your biographical information, but for people who maybe don't know you as well and uh, and haven't read your Wikipedia page or they have, and they're looking for a little bit more insight into how you grew up and how you became the Anthony Scaramucci that we know today, please tell people about you know, your upbringing, your professional background, and how you got to where you are today with Skybridge.
1: So let me, let me just, I got something in my eye right here. Let me just get this out of my eye, and then we can begin the interview. Hold on a second. Okay. The I, think I got it out of my eye. Yet. I'm, so, I'm taking
0: it easy on you so far.
1: So, you know, it's interesting. So John's uh, wife, I think this is an important part of the story. So John's wife's uncle was one of my best friends in high school. And so, you know, he stole my high school girlfriend, but you know, that happens in high school, big deal. But we stayed friends, it's 40 years later. But John's older sister, who happens to be Sammy's mom, this would be Samantha Darcy, John's My wife, Mother-in-law. Yeah, she basically said to me that I was a townie in Port Washington. Okay. So these guys obviously grew up like on like a manor somewhere, but I was like, obviously a townie. And so when I thought about that, I was like, she was hundred percent right. I was like a total townie. I, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood. You drive by that neighborhood today. It's all blue collar people, and blue collar houses. My mother won't leave the neighborhood no matter what. So God bless her. Um, and you know, the place where my dad worked is now a golf course, but it was a huge sand mine and he worked there for 42 years. Uh, and what's interesting is Ken Gone actually you know, I helped him with it, but he really put up all the money. Uh, he built a monument to all those immigrants—Irish and Italian and Welsh immigrants—that uh, that built that mine. But, but it was a great town I grew up in because it was a good mix of wealthy people, middle class people, lower middle class people, low income housing—the sort of low income housing that Donald Trump says he doesn't want to put in suburbs, which is actually valuable to the suburbs for so many different reasons. And so, so there we all were. It was a great public school education, but there was a seminal moment for me. And I believe this happens to everybody. You figure out somewhere between 11 and 17 what you're doing for your life. And so I have a son who's 28, just graduated from Stanford Business School. He wanted to get into technology and biotech and like the future. And so he went out to Silicon Valley, now lives in Venice Beach, California, is building a telemedicine company. My 21 year old son is like that. I love music and videography. He's working in the music industry. For me, I love sales. And so when I was 13, I was probably a younger than that, when I was 11, my dad got his hours cut back and there was some economic anxiety now, so I went out and got myself a newsday paper out. So if you're out here on Long Island, I was you know, delivering newspapers. And then I convinced Mr. Fusco made his sole recipes to give me like 50 free papers on Wednesdays. And so John would know where this is because he lives out here. There's this place called the Dolphin Green Apartments. It's on Main Street in Port Washington, and it was at that time, it was just really Irish and Italian ladies, and they all knew my mom. My mom was like Siri before there was a Siri. If you wanted to know who was having an affair in Port Washington, call Marie Scaramucci. She could tell you. I mean, she had everybody's details, probably knew people's fingerprints even. So I would go into that apartment building with the free newspapers. I would knock on doors, hand out free newspapers, and then I would hit these Italian and Irish women up for Subscriptions to Newsday. And so I built a fairly large Newsday practice and I gave the bulk of that money to my parents and I kept some uh, savings from me. And that's how my whole business career started. And I was like, someday I'm going to have my own business. You know, I'm going to make sure that I get myself educated. It's probably too long winded, but I'm trying to run the clock out here on John Dorsey. But go ahead, yeah, you're John. You're trying keep to going. avoid
0: the hard questions. No, ahead, I, I think going. it's helpful. And I think. You know, going later into your life, I think when people ask but me to describe the fact that your
1: mother-in-law called me a townie, I still, you know, it's not like I forgot it or anything like that. I just want to make sure that you know that I'm
0: still talking about it 35 years later. Well, she's not wrong, but we'll move on from that. Uh, when people you. ask me to describe you in one word, a lot of the times the word I use is resilience, and you've over the course of your life uh, been able to train yourself to be resilient in a lot of different scenarios and your path to success hasn't been a straight line you know you sort of you describe yourself as being a middling student in high school. You got to Tufts and the academic light bulb went off. You obviously have uh, enjoyed a lot of academic success, including going to Harvard Law School. You were fired from Goldman Sachs in the investment banking department before you went on in the private wealth management division. Uh, Skybridge almost failed in 2008 before you pivoted and grew the business to what is now the largest uh, RIC structured fund of funds in the country. And uh, you were fired from the White House after 11 days. Let, let me remind you about that. Uh, I, I, and,
1: but I I failed the bar too. You forgot the bar. You failed the bar, bar I failed twice. The bar. I forgot
0: about that. I mean, the, the list is too the long. Twice, we, would, yeah. we would run out the salt talk if we listed all of your failures and, and setbacks. But you've been able to bounce back and, and achieve success on the heels of all of those. You know, really temporary hard to believe. Setbacks. I actually
1: liked to do this with you. I'm, I'm going I'm to come right through the window there. But how do you,
0: if you were talking to an entrepreneur, how do you train yourself to be resilient? And what are other key lessons you've learned in business amid those failures or temporary setbacks?
1: Well, I mean, here's the thing, like, you know, when you grow up the way I grew up, for whatever reason, you're like, you know, starting from scratch. So you're like, if I got to go back to scratch, big deal. I always tell my kids, if I have to live in a one bedroom apartment with a white t-shirt, it won't be a wife-beater, not that you know politically incorrect. It'll be like a, just a regular fruit, fruit of the loom T-shirt. I could have a six pack of schlitz and a rabbit to your television and watch the Met games. I'm fine. And so I think what you have to do in life is you have to enjoy the journey and, and you have to handle the ups and downs like a, like a, a gentleman or a gentlewoman, and not let it overly distract you from the long-term gains and so, or, or the long-term goals. So I got, I got fired from my first job for probably the right reasons. I sucked at that job. I would like to tell you I was good at the job. I actually sucked at it. And so what happened was I wanted the cool job coming out of school. And uh, the cool job at that time was Goldman Sachs. And it was Goldman Sachs Real Estate Investment Banking. That's 31 years ago. So I hustled for that job. I got the job, but the problem was I wasn't prepared for the job. And it really didn't fit my skill set or my personality. So 18 months into the job, the Gulf War started. And we were in a recession, and the firm decided to start laying people off. And a guy by the name of Mike Fastatelli, who went on to become the CEO of Vornado Realty, was my boss. He called me to his apartment on Jane Street. It was Friday night, February 1st, not like I forget anything. It was Friday night, February 1st, 1991. I was 27-year-old. He said I was fired. I was like, oh my god, because I had a lot of school debt, and I didn't really know if I was going to actually be able to figure everything out. He handed me an $11,000 severed check, John, and I was really bummed out. And then by that morning, I got up, I went for a run, and I was like, all right, you know that job sucked. I wasn't good at it anyway. Let me see if I can go find myself another job. There's got to be another job out there. We were in a recession, so that was cr- creating some anxiety. And then I didn't have a cell phone back then. It was 31 years ago, so I was pumping like quarters into pay phones at Grand Central. And then one of my buddies said, well, there's jobs open at Goldman in the sales area, in institutional sales. And so then I called Mike. And this is a lesson for young people listening. Don't burn bridges. Okay, I called Mike. And I said, hey, I got uh, uh, an opportunity upstairs on the 28th floor. Could you help me out? And he did. And so Mike and I are still very close to this day. Uh, It's the same thing when I got fired from the White House. You know, when John- Kelly fired me from the White House, so I did something completely stupid, regrettable, um, but did it, and so I'm totally accountable for it. So another learning lesson for young people, you know, don't go like this and try to blame other people. I mean, you know, I did something stupid. I trusted somebody. The great irony is, is the reporter, was a his family was a 50-year friend of my dad. His father had worked with my dad on Long Island construction, and so I did the stupid thing. I was transposing that relationship onto my relationship with the guy's son, and was very, very stupid of me. And so he wrote this salacious article. It wasn't even exactly what I said. But then when they finally played the recording, you realize it wasn't that nuts. It was just me being my typical antical self. I said some funny stuff about Steve Bannon. And by the way, I mean, everything I said about Steve Bannon is more or less true. The guy's a total whack job. So we can talk about that if you want. But I'm fired. And so General Kelly and I got off on the wrong foot. But look at us now. I mean, we've had him on the salt talk. We've had him in Abu Dhabi with us. We had him in Las Vegas. I talked to him last weekend. We have a terrific relationship. I'm going with General Kelly to Iowa in January, where we're going to be uh, speaking together. And I had him in, at the Biltmore Hotel in January of this past year. So him and I are on speaking tour together, uh, and it's been a lot of fun. And so, what do you do? You got to make lemonade out of lemons, man. You don't go. You can sit there and and cry. But I just want you to imagine. And my son, my oldest son. You put together like a 15-minute composite video of me getting my ass kicked by late-night comedians. It's sort of humiliating. Right? It was like 15 solid minutes of like Jack Oliver and Seth Meyers and, you know, all these different people. I mean, it's a, it was absolutely brutal. But thank God, for some reason, it's never gotten on the internet, thank God. But, yeah, I looked at it, I said, OK, I mean, this is a rough situation. I got to get bounced. I got roughed up in the press. And so I'm just going to go back and do what I know how to do and try to speak. Honestly, about situations, and I think that's the lesson, John. I mean, no, I mean, look, we got our asses kicked in March. You didn't see me complain about it.
0: Just keep um, keep going some,
1: forward. Some people fired us, other people hired us. My attitude is always live below your means, always save a little bit of money, and this way, when you get a little older in life, you have a little bit of a cushion, you know. And then some good things happen. My buddy Steve Cohen is buying the Mets. So I own a piece of that. That's great, um, you know. And, and you have to stay balanced and. You have to look at the long run and try not to burn bridges, you know. So then your obvious question would be, well, what about you and Trump? It's nothing personal with me and Trump. I, it's fine. I mean, he's just not fit to be the president of the United States. That's all. It's not a personal thing. It's just to me, I think there's something off with the guy, I and mean, it's too dangerous for Let's the country.
0: Let's frame the whole thing. Let's frame the whole thing. So you you support Scott Walker as the Republican nominee, he fails. You support Jeb Bush as the nominee, he fails. You, you join the Trump campaign, despite the fact that you don't share, you know, a ton of values with Trump, but you thought he could be a pragmatic postpartisan president. Um, you go to his rallies and it opens your eyes to what's going on in the country. There's a lot of blue collar people like the people that, you know, you, you grew up around in Port Washington, um, like your dad grew up around in Pennsylvania, who are really struggling, who feel like they're not part of this uh, American growth story anymore. So, and you wrote a book about it, you know, even after you left uh, the administration, people say, oh, you turned on Trump because he fired you. Actually, that's not accurate. You stayed loyal to him. And you actually wrote a book praising him and his uh, work in appealing to the blue collar base of the country. But something happened. It was a process, really, that, that took place that you eventually sort of rescinded oh. your support of him. And you're now obviously campaigning against him and for Vice President Biden. So what was that process oh, like? Oh, what did Trump happen okay, So I mean, the, the great news about this is, is
1: unlike Sandra Smith on Fox News, you're gonna let me explain it. So I mean, like, it's just very simple. It's not a personal thing. Imagine the two of us are on the board of a publicly traded company. We select somebody to be the CEO, and then they demonstrate four years of this type of behavior, this type of policy decisions, and you know they're going off on their Twitter feed the way that he's doing. You're like, okay, this is not the right guy for us. It's not the right guy. And so what happens in our country? It's not a hiring decision. It's a popularity contest or something. And Then the media sets up this narrative that we have this great culture war, that this is a battle between capitalism and socialism or communism. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's not true. It's not capitalism or communism. We have a political construct in our country where we have a safety net for people that are indigent, uh, but we have, by and large, a meritocratic capitalist system, but you have to have some regulation and you have to create some opportunity for people that are starting at uneven places in the starting block. You know, I grew up in Port Washington. That was a great public school. If I grew up in an inner city somewhere, uh, maybe I wouldn't have gotten the same education that I got. And I think that that's the unfairness in our society. Life, of course, is unfair, but a good quality government is designed to try to create equal opportunity. I'm not about equal outcome. You know, uh, a vice president uh, candidate for the vice presidency, Senator Kamala Harris, she tweeted out something yesterday. People say, oh, that's communism. Go look at the tweet. Someone's starting behind the other guy. All she's trying to say is that a good government, an energetic government, it's not a left or right policy. It's a right or wrong policy. Let's even up the educational system so that people, no matter where they're born, they can have a shot at things. I mean, that's, that's good capitalism, if anything. That's not bad capitalism. So my evolution with the president, very simple. He fired me. No problem. State him. Went out to advocate for him. Um, now he's separating women from children. He's putting the kids in cages. OK, you can't can't argue for that. I'm sorry. So I denounced that. Then he's in Helsinki. He's saying that he believes Vladimir Putin over the intelligence agencies. OK, you can't really abide by that. Then he's calling the press the enemy of the people. Him and Steve Bannon are ginning that up. Well, I'm a big believer in the free press. And by the way, I think I have standing with the free press. They beat the living hell out of me. uh, And I'm no problem with it. I mean, God bless. I talk to the reporters that beat me up as much as I talk to the reporters that don't beat me up. And my attitude is, you're a public figure. Take the hits. Who cares? But the thing about the press, John, it's very important people understand is, without the press, you don't have the innovation or the economic engine, because you're teaching young kids to speak and think freely and you're doing that in the first and second grade, they go on and create Facebook or Google or Apple Computer or an AI software technological platform. If you're censoring the internet like they do in China, or you're telling people they can't talk about politics, uh, you start to narrow out their way of thinking, and they have to steal your intellectual property. They don't have the bandwidth to create it. And so it's an important element of the country's success. So I wrote an article, The Press is Not the End of the People. The president called me on Easter Sunday super pissed at me. And he said, oh, the press is the enemy view. I said, well, they're not. You know, Read the article. I don't have to read the article. I read the headline. I all right, fine. Don't you want the independents? Don't you want the, uh, the moderates? And this is a very telling thing about the president. No, I don't want them. I'm going to focus on my base, and I'll let everything take care of itself. OK, I said, look, that's a bad recipe. That's not going to work. And you know, he hung up the phone. He was sore at me it was the last time I spoke to him. Uh, and and that's fine. And now we're going into the summertime, and he's going after the squad. So, you know, these are four women that are in the Congress. Some are African American, some are Muslim American, some are Hispanic American, going after them. He's writing that they should go back to the countries they originally came from. I'm, what are you doing? You can't talk like that. That is racism. That is racism, as American nativism. You can't talk like that. So I said, Hey, I'm on the show. I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to approve that. I don't, I don't sanction that. Rudy Giuliani, you know this, and Rudy has said this. I go back 30 years with Rudy. I wrote him a check when I was 25 years old when he ran for mayor the first time in 89 unsuccessfully. I said to the mayor, I said, come on, man, you can't accept that. Your grandparents, your Italian-American grandparents were told by racists and nativists to go back to the country they originally came from. You're going to accept that? You can't, you can't disavow your personal story and all your personal integrity to accept that sort of stuff. And so, but Rudy said, yeah, no, I'm going to accept it. Look, you know, look, Rudy's going full Borat now. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I feel bad about it. I choose <laughs> to view Rudy the way he was when, you know, I was a kid and he was cleaning up New York City. I don't like to look at him the way he is today. But, you know, so here we are now. And then, then the president goes after me. Okay, that's fine. I'm a public figure. Ha ha, he he. you can tweet about me. And then, you know, I got to go after him because, you know, my person, I'm not going to sit there. So I think I called him Fidel Adolf Trump. I think you were there because I had to get the fat shaming, and I called him the notorious FAT. You know. And then I think I got knocked off Twitter for 12 hours. You probably remember that, so was yeah. my first and only time that I've been knocked off Twitter. Uh, and then he went nuts, and he goes after my wife. I mean, Who does that? He's going after my wife, the President of the United States. Who does that? I raised and gave the guy millions of dollars. I was on his executive team. When he, everyone thought he was losing after Access Hollywood, Chris Christie and I went and raised money at the Hunt and Fish Club for his transition, who no one thought he was going to have. We were out there raising money for it, giving money to it. He goes after my wife? I mean, you got to be nuts. Okay, so I'm not Ted Cruz. You know that. I think Ted Cruz knows that. Most people know I'm not Ted Cruz. You got to come after my wife, after her and I almost got divorced after me working for you. I mean, you know, Deirdre, she hates Trump. She probably doesn't hate him as much as Melania hates him. But I mean, it's up there. It's, I mean, it's up Nobody it's up hates there.
0: Trump more than Trump hates himself. And we've talked well, about that. Right, but that might be true. I'm losing but now, my editorial now he's coming
1: though. after my wife. He knows her and I were in a battle over our marriage, almost got divorced. It's just this ruthless, insensitive, unempathetic nonsense. That was it. So I got up in August of last year, and I said, this guy's crazy. There's something wrong with this guy. He's irrational. He alienates people that could be allies of his. He doesn't have a unifying message, and he's crazy. And then people said to me, I'm crazy. He's going to soundly win re-election. I said, no, he's not. He's not going to win re-election because he's nuts. And there'll be a crisis that happens, and he'll mishandle the crisis. Now, just quickly, and you were in this meeting. We had a senior cabinet official come to Skybridge sat on the couch last October and the senior cabinet official said and this is you know, a real senior cabinet handle-
0: official not a, a New York Times uh, senior cabinet official no
1: this was somebody named in the cabinet okay a well-known name everybody knows I mean this it's and he said we're not going to be able to handle a crisis because the president respectfully can't manage anything and so if a crisis comes you don't have any orchestration any delegation you're not running it off the Fred Greenstein, the Princeton professor, or the Richard Neustadt, the Harvard professor that studied the Eisenhower and Kennedy administrations, there's no managerial process in the executive branch, this cabinet official said, and a result of which, when a crisis comes, it's going to be a disaster. And when the Solomon strike happened, I was like, okay, this is the crisis that was being referred to. Thank God that abated. That seems like it's 100 years ago now. And then we got COVID-19. And then he did exactly what people that are close to him, that are honest about it, would say that he would do. John Kelly, H.R. McMaster, uh, myself, what would he do? He's insecure with the experts. The expert comes in, gives him the expert opinion, and he's insecure about it. They're talking in full sentences, and they got well educations, and so he's insecure. So he's got to do the opposite of what they're suggesting, because as uh, General McMaster used to call it, it it was an intuitive, reflexive response to try to show the person that he knew better and that he was smarter than them okay maybe that will work in opinion based stuff and maybe it will work in foreign policy in certain areas maybe you know I want to be fair as fair as possible but it's not going to work in science you're not going to be able to say okay listen the South Koreans are going to do the following to handle the epidemic epidemic and they're listening to their epidemiologists now they have 20 deaths per million, and the United States is going to do the exact opposite, and we're going to have this total chaotic response, and we're going to tell supporters of the President that they shouldn't wear masks, and we should just run rampant through the country when we have guys like Anthony Fauci saying, well, if you do that, we're going to have uh, tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths." And so you got the crisis. The crisis impacted the President's personality. The President mishandled and lied about the crisis. And then he did, which is the most ironic thing, he wrecked the economy. And so we can pretend that he's better for the economy than Joe Biden, but he's not. He's not better because you got to handle the crisis. you you got to make the people healthy first before the economy is going to respond. And so let's
0: talk about that. Let's talk about that. You've been very vocal in the media talking about how you think Joe Biden is the better candidate for the economy and for markets, in spite of the fact that he's talking about raising income taxes for people making more than $400,000 a year, in spite of the fact that he's talking about raising the corporate tax rate. We talk about you know pure, pure corporate cash flows, and you look at the stock market as a reflection of, of things that are going on in the economy, even though it's not, not exactly a reflection of the economy. Why do you think that sacrificing tax rates for corporations and wealthy Americans is worth it and is offset by other normalcy that Joe Biden will bring to the table.
1: Well, okay. Well, the first thing you have to either believe or not believe, I believe that the president is threatening the institutions of our democracy and the checks and balances in the system. And you don't have to believe that. Just go look at what he's saying. Look at his rhetoric. And Michael Cohen, myself, and others that know him know that he doesn't joke around So he's trying to subvert the process, and he would like to jail his political opponents, and he would like uh, to stay in the White House forever. All of this despotic nonsense is stuff that he really believes. And so when you got the president of the United States in the middle of an election saying, well, I may or may not accept the peaceful transfer of power, you're like, "Okay, hold on a second. What made us a beacon of hope for mankind uh, and a shining city on a hill is that we did that. And that we had an understanding in the country that we were going to do that peacefully. You can't talk like that from the American presidency anymore than you could tell people that were born in the United States, like members of the squad. Three of them were born here. One was a naturalized citizen to go back to the countries that they originally came from. So it's classically un-American what he's doing. And so I would stipulate to all my friends in business that he's very dangerous to the rule of law. And one of the cornerstones that has made American business so successful for hundreds of years is the predictability of the rule of law, the understanding that there is stare decisis, that there's precedent in the law, and that when we enter into legal contracts with each other, they're binding, and there will be some impartiality to that process. Uh, Moreover, if someone does something criminal in the country, uh, we'll give them Uh, the right to defend themselves and will presume that they're innocent. But there is some fairness there if you are harmed, that someone will have justice uh, uh, sought against them. And so you can't have this nonsense. So without that, and then the next layer is, well, we got to be healthy. So we can't have somebody lying about the science or not having any managerial skills to handle a crisis uh, or having such insecurity that they can't even talk to people in the room. They have like a one run on sentence where they talk to themselves in like this stream of consciousness nonsense where you've got like real experts in the room that can tell you how to how to do something. And so you 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 keep going. Okay, well his tax rates are better than Joe Biden's. Well we don't know that necessarily. You know, the Obama administration did not raise taxes for several years because the economy was too weak. I don't think that you're going to see a tax hike immediately. Um, I just don't see it because the economy can't afford it. The economy's in bad shape. The flip side, though, is we had Stephanie Kelton, who's a modern monetary theorist on our soft talks. I read her book, The Deficit Myth. She makes a compelling case for deficits not mattering. Um, but she then also says in the book, chapter six or what, what five, that deficits do matter. That you can't run it ridiculously where you're running a 50 60% deficit per year, on your operating budget, you don 't want to rack up a hundred trillion dollars of debt and so the great irony here is is the president 's done that you know he's missed it. if you If you look at the Obama administration and what they were doing it's more classically republican than the trump administration so there's a tremendous amount of hypocrisy and then you have the news organizations that have fragmentized and they 're speaking into echo chambers in our society now john and so there's a lot of people i 'm saying this. The flaps are going down over the years. They don't want to hear it. Because other people say, okay, that makes sense. And then they'll disagree with me on something else. And then bam, we get the whole demonization thing going again, where we can't just be Americans having civil discourse and honest disagreements and working towards a consensus to come up with the right ideas. Uh, we have to have this black or white uh, demonic thing. Or if you don't agree with me, you're the devil. And this guy doesn't agree with me, he's the devil. And it's a battle between communism and capitalism. It's not. It's not a battle between communism and capitalism. Moreover, there's no culture war. Okay, they got on certain news media, they've got people believing that Trump is the last white man standing from the latte drinking hordes of Hispanic and African-American transvestites that are going to come up over the transom and take over the culture. That's what I talk to those people. It's not going to happen, first of all. Uh, I don't dictate how people live if they're living in the city of New York or South Dakota or Texas or California, any more than those people dictate the way I live here on Long Island. That is the most unbelievable gift of being American that you have that level of freedom. And so, so let's break down all of these myths about what's going on and then let's look clinically at the people involved. Now, is Joe Biden the perfect guy? No, I'm not saying he's the perfect guy, but he's a better guy than. Than President Trump would be in this so situation. Let's
0: talk about that. So there's two separate questions here. There's what do you think the ultimate outcome of the election is going to be, and how do you think it's going to play out tomorrow on election day, despite the fact that in a lot of states, the turnout so far in early voting and in mail-in voting has already exceeded the total vote for 2016, but tomorrow is still election day. Uh, how do you think, ultimately, the election is going to play out? What's, what's the map going to look like you know, who's going to win? And then how do you think things are going to play out tomorrow?
1: Okay, so I'm not talking my book. Okay, I'm looking at it. This is objectively, this is not you rooting for Biden. This is like, I'm looking at it the way a money manager would look at it, an analyst, forget about who I want to have win. How do I think it's going to play out is I think it's going to be consistent with where the polling is. There's an outlier poll called Trafalgar, they got more things right last time than they got wrong they're calling it closer than say, the real clear politics average. And the real clear politics average made a few Midwestern states. I think they missed them by a few points, but it was still roughly inside the margin of error. And so if you look at the polling, you give the president the benefit of the doubt of the margin of error, he's going to lose the election. You know, he's going to get routed by Vice President Biden. But the other thing that I'm looking at are things like the bet fair market, the predicted market, you know, I'm a money manager, so I like following the money. Uh, Joe Biden, as of last night, is a two to one favorite. Now, there's gamblers on this call. There's people that understand odds. A two to one favorite is a very strong favorite. So when Nate Silver saying it's a 90% chance, sure, there's a 10% chance, uh, but let me put it this way. I'd have to take a coin out of my pocket and flip it heads four times in a row for Mr. Trump to win. And that does happen. So he could win re-election. But the more likely scenario is that one of those will come up tails as I'm flipping, possibly more than one. And so uh, I, I don't see it happening. Anything can happen, but he doesn't have the groundswell that he had last time. And he happens to be the polarizing candidate this time, not Vice President Biden. And so, and you got a pandemic going on. And, and what Carvel would say, it's, you know, 28 years ago, James Carvel, it's the economy, stupid. Today's mantra is it's the pandemic, stupid, because the pandemic is tied to the economy. And and 67% of the Americans say they would trust Vice President Biden with the handling of the pandemic than President Trump. So he's going. and So the question is, how wide of a margin is he going? And then what is he going to do? What kind of antic is he pulling? Now, I'm going to say something that some people are not going to like. I, I don't think he's playing to win this thing. If you look at his speeches or the rallies, what he's saying at these things, he's not really trying to open the tent or trying to get people to vote for him as much as he's trying to create a ruckus. I think he's trying to set himself up for a post-presidency that could be filled with media appearances or filled with some kind of uh, political power related to this movement that he's created. And I also think if he's in trouble anywhere, uh, he's going to want to use that political power to help him and his family uh, if there's potential investigations that he's worried about.
0: So Axios reported uh, in the last couple of days that he's telling people that if there's any hint that he might have a chance to win tomorrow, he's going to declare victory, and he's going to throw everything into a little bit of chaos. So he would need to lose probably North Carolina or Florida for us to have a definitive you know, proof by tomorrow night, election day, that he's likely lost the election. Do you expect him to lose states like North Carolina or Florida or do you expect this to drag out for a couple of days as we count all the ballots in a place like so Pennsylvania? So you're
1: you're looking at the same polls. Everyone on this call is looking at the same polls. So I don't have any insight there. I did a call with the Lincoln Project yesterday, and they think definitively that he's going to lose tomorrow by wide enough margins. Uh, I don't remember them specifically saying anything about Florida or or North Carolina, but uh, Bill Kristol, somebody I'm close to, he's done polling in Florida, independent polling and thinks that the, the vice president is up anywhere from 3 to 5%. So that's still inside the margin of error. But if I had to guess, because of what's going on with seniors and suburban women, uh, I'm guessing he's going to end up losing Florida. And that will be a very big deal. He won't be able to manifest any of these ideas that he's coming up with with Axios. Uh, if for some reason he doesn't lose Florida and it gets a little heated and more contested, uh, you know, he'll try to do things. But If you've got states certifying the elections and therefore bringing in the electors, you know, one strategy that's been proposed is that he goes and sues everybody and says that the state legislatures should be picking the electors. And there's more state legislators that are Republican controlled and try to subvert the electoral college and get the state legislators to pick the electors instead of the American people and some vagaries about that. Uh, and I, I e- even though he has such acolytes and he's had such amazing sycophants in the leadership of the Republican Party, I choose to believe that somebody like Mitch McConnell at that point will say, all right, man, you got to go. And this is a real lesson in demagoguery because a demagogue can't do what it's doing without the help of people. You got to have willing accomplices to do that. So if you want to lie about the Ukraine and you want to see if you can get uh, a blackmail scheme going with the president of the U.K. Crane, that's great. OK, but, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You're not going to be able to, you know, I mean, I don't know. You have 52 people that voted against it. Mitt Romney voted for it. I mean, I understood the law. Uh, we've gotten ourselves into this politicization situation, which is, uh, I think, unfair for the country.
0: So. Let's talk about something you do know about. You talked about you don't have any more data related to polling than anyone else has. But Pennsylvania is an area that I think you have a particularly keen sense of. You spent a lot of time in 2016 campaigning alongside people like Don Jr. in Pennsylvania. Your dad's family is from the Scranton, Wilkesbury area. And Pennsylvania is seen as a key battleground here because if Biden wins Michigan and Wisconsin and Minnesota the way people expect him to, then if he wins Pennsylvania, then he he wins the election. What what types of people do you think are ones that maybe voted for Obama in 2008, voted for Trump in 2016, and might be voting for Biden in 2020? What does that coalition look like? Why have they turned on Trump potentially, and why would they be attracted to Biden in this race?
1: Well, I mean, they would be attracted to Biden because they would understand the way my dad understands, having grown up in wilkes and in that Scranton area that he's one of them. So he actually has pathos and empathy for their struggle and empathy for the economic situation that many of those people are facing in terms of living paycheck to paycheck. I think uh, Mr. Trump won those areas because Secretary Clinton, uh, whether you like her or dislike her, I'm not picking on her, she probably didn't connect with those people. And those people have felt that establishment leaders have more or less
0: left them to themselves.
1: There's despite been a vacuum that of that.
0: Despite the fact that she's from Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, she grew up in wilkes as well. You know, when I listened to uh, Secretary Clinton speak, she sounds like my Aunt Eleanor because, you know, my dad grew up. It's interesting. My dad grew up about four miles from where Secretary Clinton grew up and 15 miles were from Joe Biden. So I know the area well. Uh, but I think the northeastern part of that state is going to go for Joe Biden in a way that will cause the state to flip over to Joe Biden. He may not get certain Southwestern areas of the state or Pittsburgh that still seem like they're for Mr. Trump. They believe in uh, the cause of Mr. Trump. But here's what I would say to those people, and I have been saying this because I've been doing local radio in those markets and I've been doing local television, is that he's been an avatar for your anger. He's been expressing what you're angry about, but he has not been offering a policy solution. He's had four years to offer a policy solution to what you're upset about, but he hasn't done that. And now he's threatening your elderly parents uh, with the COVID-19 crisis. So we may want to switch jockeys here uh, and see if we can try something different. And by the way, Joe Biden is one of the, what I would call a blue collar Democrat. Okay. And so I think you may get better policy response from Joe Biden than you would from President Trump, who, you know, he did a really big corporate tax cut. Uh, which I would say helped the stock market. It's unclear how much it helped wages at the bottom end. It didn't necessarily trickle down, uh, but maybe Joe Biden can provide something that's more substantial for those people.
0: And I think that's the right message. So you, you mentioned you know trickle down. Trickle down economics was a hallmark of you know Reagan Republicanism, and ideologically, you know I think we're starting to see sort of a tipping point right now in the Republican Party. So. I think you still consider yourself a Republican, and you voiced a lot of concerns about the direction of the party. You've had people like the Lincoln Project, a group of what I would consider moderate Republicans who are trying to engineer sort of a restructuring of the party. You know, But 90% of Republicans support President Trump. Stuart Stevens wrote a great book. He's part of the Lincoln Project about his role and and how the Republican Party really is being exposed uh, for its hypocrisy over the last... 30 or so years, uh, how has the pandemic, or even you know, unrelated to the pandemic, how have things changed recently in terms of how you look at things like a social safety net, uh, how you look at things like access to healthcare, how you look at things like education. And when this is all over, and let's assume that Trump loses as by as much as the polls suggest that he's going to lose by, how does that party restructure itself? And, and how do we you know basically build two parties where both of them believe that everyone's vote should be counted in an election, for example? Well, there's a lot
1: of different potential outcomes uh, for the party. Let's assume that he loses for a second. If he doesn't lose, party's going into a nuclear winter, it's going to become a white aging demographic, it's going to be a, become a party of uh, people that are buying catheters and pillows from Fox News commercial ads, and that's what the party's going to be, and they're going to get trounced in 2024 and 2028. If they have a reckoning like they did in 1980, and they bring in leadership that has a wider bandwidth that can open the tent and can make the party look demographically more like the rest of the country, then they can reach out to people with different ideas that are necessarily, in my opinion, entrepreneurial ideas. You know, The GI Bill was an entrepreneur's idea. Yes, it was a government program, but look at how many entrepreneurs sprouted out from that, the understanding of how to make uh, big tech companies more innovative by potentially breaking them up that's an entrepreneurs idea uh, that's been going on for 1500 years looking at technology companies or businesses that need to be broken up so that there could be more innovation and more a- opportunity uh, the Andrew yang stuff about universal base income you and I talked to Fareed Zakaria last week about a unif- you know like a a, 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 a a tax cut on the uh, the income, it's an earned income, earned income tax, tax credit, credit yeah. is what it's, what it's called. And so uh, there are ideas that you could present to people that all of a sudden, uh, people that want better lives for themselves and their families, want more aspirational economic activity, want more self-reliance, also can get excited by. And so uh, if you're going to go down the rabbit hole of we're just going to have lower taxes and high deficit spending, you know, this is the great irony about Trump's base. Uh, I think it's very important people to understand this, Trump's base is the opposite of what you may think. They are religious conservatives, but they are by and large fiscally liberal, Uh, meaning that they want the Medicare, they want the Medicaid, they want the Social Security benefits, the workers' comp benefits, the unemployment benefits. And so Trump understands that. Uh, And I've had conversations with him about it in 2016. People think that these people are fiscally conservative, and they're religiously and socially conservative. They're not but the opposite of what people think, you know? Um, and so I just think it's important that the Republicans have to figure out what the matrix should be to increase the size of the tent. If they go with Trumpism in 2024, I think they're going to get annihilated.
0: All right, we're, we're going to go into salt talks overtime here because we have so much audience participation. And, um, you know, I want to talk about, and this is an audience question, about your point about Trump somehow connecting with the forgotten man. He's been left behind by globalization. You, you wrote about this topic uh, in an op-ed, uh, I believe, this week. Uh, there's a lot of other social observations about income and wealth inequality, race inequality issues, the white grievance that's coming out of people who are now so fervently anti-immigrant. So how do we make the argument for those people and bring them back into the fold, you know, rather than calling them deplorable and, and basically saying, we're just going to ignore them in future elections. How do we bring them back into the fold and make that argument that the American dream still exists and is still attainable for them?
1: Yeah, so obviously, that's the question. And so for me, I would want to offer those people a package of services from the government. And some of it could be education, some of it can be jobs training, education for their children, jobs training for themselves, and some liftoff package. Uh, It could be a UBI structure, or it could be a you know earned income tax credit structure, but all of a sudden now they've got some sense of fairness and they've got some sense of fiscal stability. You know, the amazing thing about the rejection of UBI by the very wealthy is that they're doing it for their kids. You know, every real, wealthy parent is giving UBI to their kids to help them get started. Okay. So, you know, and but he's, oh, it's gonna cost a lot of money to be deficit spending, not necessarily. It could be set up in a public-private partnership. Where corporations get tax credits to help people, and all of a sudden those people are now inspired to go work for either of those corporations or work on their own. I mean, what we're doing right now is because we're beating the living hell out of each other. We're not sitting down with any level of policy wonkishness to really go through what would work. And so, uh, what I submit, and you've heard me say this publicly, we don't have a 10 year plan for America. We don't have a 15 year plan for America, a 20 year plan for America. We have a no year plan for America. And so while our adversaries and our competitors around the world are planning strategically, we're sitting here beating the living daylights out of each other during uh, cable news segments. So we could come up with a plan, and then all of a sudden, we can go to those people and say, "Okay, this is a better plan for you. We don't want you to be clinging to the state. We don't want you to be on the quote unquote dole. We don't want you to have us telling you how to live your life. We want to put money in your pocket and allow you to figure out a way spend that money in the best interest of yourself and your family. We don't want it to be a top down structure, but we want to give you some supplementation from the bottom to help lift you up. And I think that's the direction that the Republican Party has to go in and still m- maintain uh, a broad sense for propitious regulation and a broad sense for free market principles. Uh, but let's stop the hypocrisy. You can't say, I'm a free market guy, and then you want gas and oil credits. I'm a free market guy, but Wall Street's blowing up, shoot me a trillion dollars to save my investment bank. I mean, you got to look at it holistically, and you got to say, OK, there's elements of the free market, and there's elements of incentives that work for people. They were certainly inspired me. I believe 35 years ago, if I worked hard, got educated, took some level of rational risk, I would create some amount of financial independence for myself.
0: Are you worried about deficits? You know, you talked about Stephanie Kelton. We had her on a a SALT talk a couple of months ago. She's one of the the leading evangelists for modern monetary theory. You know, the Republican Party seems to be concerned about deficits when there's a Democrat in office, but not when there's a Republican in office. But, you know, we don't know what the long-term effect of these rising deficits and our rising debt will be. Are you concerned about that? Or do you think, as John Maynard Keynes would say, which we also had Zach Carver on, who wrote a great book, about Keynes as well. Do you think the investment that we make today is going to be worthwhile in terms of the short term deficit, in terms of the long term prosperity that it's going to create for the country? I'm, I'm,
1: I'm worried about deficits, but not in the classic sense that we were trained to worry about deficits. You know, when Dick Cheney said deficits didn't matter, I didn't realize he was a modern monetary theorist when he said it. So I've done a lot of work on it. I read Stephanie's book, we interviewed Stephanie. What I would say is that the balance sheet of the United States is big enough to handle what we're doing right now. You've got 28% of the land in the United States is owned by the US government, and there is natural resources under that land that's probably $60 trillion. So if we were a company, and you never probably run country- it. It's probably undershooting I'm, it, to be honest. Okay, I'm probably undershooting. I'm just giving a rough market-based yeah. estimate. Maybe it's $100 trillion, but The point being is, if you got a $30 trillion debt, and you got $60 trillion worth of assets, uh, and you've got a $22 to $23 trillion economy with a robust tax base, you can handle the deficit spending. Where Stephanie and I disagree intellectually is that what ends up happening is if you get too much deficit spending, what ends up happening is the central bank always moves to monetize the debt. And so this is why digital currencies are in vogue now. But let me just give you this example: We became a fiat currency in mid-August of 1971. So that's 49 years ago. Uh, at that point, as a result of the Bretton Woods deal in 1944, one dollar—I'm uh, sorry, one ounce of gold was worth 35 U.S. dollars. Uh, when we pulled the pin on the gold standard and we let the dollar float. Uh, you tell me, John, I haven't seen it this morning, but it's probably like $2,000 an ounce now. So we went from $35 an ounce to $2,000 an ounce. I'm just giving you the virtual real-time examination of how we devalued our money, how we monetize the debt. The house that I'm living in now, uh, you would have to buy this house. It would be probably one twentieth of the price that I paid uh, for this house. And so it's an example of- uh, Monetizing when you monetize, the rich stay rich because they own assets and their assets are going up in price alongside of the amount of money that's being printed. Nobody cares, but the poor can't catch up. And if you look at the wages of the poor, uh, there's they're they're down. You know, my dad's wages, and I told Mr. Trump this in 2016. My dad's wages is 1976 wages in 2016 were down about 40. I'm oh, sorry, about down about 26 percent in 40 years. So, I mean, you know, you got to fix that. That's fixable, but you got to be very careful with too much deficit spending because that's one of the negative side effects of it.
0: So, let's talk about foreign policy for a second. We have a question about um, the Middle East as an example. So, Trump is unsurprisingly taking a lot of credit for the Abraham Accords, which is, you know, they call it a peace deal between. Israel and the UAE, I think that's a little bit of a misnomer. Those two countries were not, in fact, at war, but it's a normalization of relations, which is a very positive thing. And we did our SALT conference in the UAE and have a lot of friends in the region, and it's a very positive development. We have a lot of friends in Israel as well. Um, But if you bring Vice President Biden into that seat, uh, the, the presidential seat, how do you expect the current foreign policy of the United States to change and also, how do you think it would be different uh, relative to what President Obama pursued in terms of his foreign policy, not just in the Middle East, but all over the world? One area that you see plenty of people who served uh, in, the, the, as in the State Department or in the Department of Defense, they had some frustration with some of Obama's foreign policy. And obviously, there's elements of Trump's foreign policy that that are problematic, and we won't get into different allegations of why that might be the case. But- What do you expect Biden foreign policy to be? And what do you say to people who are concerned about uh, a shift there back into sort of some of Obama's uh, foreign policies in the region?
1: So, you know, John, what I would say, and it'd be a very broad stroke here, what I would say is that learn something from President Trump. I want to be fair to him. Uh, He made the bold decision to move the embassy to Jerusalem. It didn't have the impact that other consensus people thought it would. I accept that there's been a 15-year relationship between the UAE and Israel and with the UAE and Bahrain, and they've had a good working relationship. But to formalize it, I want to give Jared Kushner and President Trump credit for that as well. I think that they helped nudge that along. I think that's very, very good for peace and stability. That air traffic, those commercial ideas transferring is very good for peace and stability. Uh, A critic would say, well, where are the Palestinians? Why are they not at the table? You and I went to that peace initiative, in June of 2019, in Bahrain at the Four Seasons, and we listened to what I thought was a very well thought out economic plan for the Palestinians. But it's fortunately it's not married to the dignity of political rights. And so, you know, you're not going to be able to say, "Okay, I'm going to make you rich, but you're going to be enslaved by me." That's not going to work. Okay, so you have to figure out a way uh, to give dignity through the political process, and then marry it to this sort of economic aspiration. Um, And that has to be solved for still. Those are very complex problems. Uh, One of the things that happened to me as a result of getting into politics is that you study the thing or you read a daily briefing, you're like, oh, my God, this is way more complex than I originally thought or the way it's reported in the news. And so it's very complex. But I want to give the president credit for those things. And what I would say to the vice president is be careful with Iran. Uh, President Obama went in a direction of empowering them through the nuclear deal, Um, And some people in the region felt that that was sort of like empowering the bully in a neighborhood. And so you're trying to get the neighborhood bully to come to the table so that you can stop the neighborhood bully from bullying people. But you may, in fact, be empowering the bully as opposed to disempowering them. So I would want them to be cautious with Iran. Uh, And I think our our friends in the Persian Gulf would say that. I think our friends in Israel would also say that. Um, But I think the good news is, is that uh, there'll be more strategic thinking around our relationship with China and more strategic thinking around the Western alliance and how to strengthen the Western alliance and hit it in a positive reset as opposed to the sort of stuff that President Trump has been doing by attacking Western leaders and Democratic leaders and praising dictators. I just think it's a bad reflection on the United States.
0: So let's leave it uh, with just a couple final questions about tomorrow. So I think That's what everyone is focused on right now is is how the election is going to play out. We have a question from a member of our audience about the shy Trump voter. So in 2016, there was a large swath of undecided voters and shy Trump voters. Do you think that phenomenon is going to play out again to the point that it could lead to massive margin of error in the polls, which is what would be necessary for Trump to win? Or do you think that's a misnomer and conditions are a little bit different here in 2020?
1: So I think they are different. I do think that we've got more polling data around those differences, even with more polling data around the differences. Let's build in a few percentage points for the shy Trump voter. Let's say, uh, and I'll, I'll use the Nate Silver example. Let's say the polls are as wrong as they were in 2016, and then let's add two points to that. And want we'll make those two points be favorable to the president. He still loses. So uh, it may be there. Um, but you know, listen, I mean, he'll, he will have lost this election uh, primarily because of himself. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if he had just said, OK, wow, got a crisis. Let's look at the South Koreans are handling it. Because it seems like best practices. Oh, those guys are handling it well. OK, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to keep the American people safe. I'm going to get out on the phone. I'm going to tell them this is exactly what we're going to do. Listen to these experts. We're going to do this in an appropriate way so that we can get the virus under control. So that we can experience economic growth, and the virus is over, he would have won resounding re-election. But he didn't do that, and so he wrecked the economy, and he and he, and he created this self-loathing, uh, self-destructive setup for himself. And so, if he loses tomorrow, and I predict he will, he'll have to answer to that at some point in his mind. He'll have to say, "Okay, well, how did that go so badly for me, uh, and when it didn't necessarily have to."
0: Well, we're going to leave it there. You know, we could obviously uh, cover a lot of different ground related to SkyBridge, salt, and and the election. But given everything that's uh, coming up tomorrow, we figured we'd focus on that. Thank you, Mister Scaramucci, for joining us today. I took it pretty easy on you. You know, I I thought it was going to be more like a roast, but you you talked too much, so I didn't get my oh, bars. yeah. I
1: tried to do. I tried to filler bust you. There was somebody that asked about telemedicine and tinnitus. So unfortunately, I experienced tinnitus. So just thirty seconds on that. Yep. No cure for that yet. Uh, but there will eventually be a cure for that. Uh, and so we just got to stay patient. But, you know, when I worked on a construction site as a kid. I and mean, you, you weren't protecting your ears the way you should have. And and uh, I'm sure sort of, a lot of us have been to rock concerts over, over the years as well. So, but we will get a cure for that. Um, all right, John, thank you. Uh, uh, may keep you around. I don't know. I was thinking about firing you after the Fareed Zakaria situation. Where you're just ripping into me. But, you know, you were pretty gentle on me today. So we'll probably keep you around.
0: All right. Sounds like a plan. Well, we have right. you hosting... Uh, Governor Cuomo now on Thursday, so that should be an exciting talk. Hopefully by Thursday we have a picture of who the next president's going to be, and I know you're hoping it goes in I one think direction. but
1: I, th- uh, I think we will, one way or the other, but I, I do think we will.
0: I know we've got to work on healing in, the
1: country, my brother. All yeah. right, man. Thank you.
0: All right. Take care, Anthony. Thank you for joining us on the other side of the ledger to where you normally sit on Salt Talks. It was a lot of fun, and maybe we'll do that again in the future uh, once we have you know an outcome for the election, maybe in the first quarter. We can talk about what Biden's first 100 days might look like and preview some of our conferences that we have coming up uh, in 2021 as well.